Thursdays are small town salute days on the start, and today we went to Steinbach to talk about the Winter Carnival, which triggered a couple of conversations about embracing winter. Also today we talked about aging out of care. How can we help kids who are in care better transition into society? Also, when it comes to helping kids, we visited with R.B. Russell Vocational School to find out the special things they're doing with their culinary arts program to provide a free breakfast program for the students. And there's a B.C. TikTok toddler who has gone viral for helping his mom with the family business. So that triggered a fun chat about your first jobs. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, February 16th podcast for the start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you very much for joining us on this Thursday morning on the start. And Thursday means small town salute day. And... Today, Loren, we're heading to a place that is known for being a summer destination, but they want people to start thinking about, hey, why don't you come and see us in the winter as well? Yeah, and I think there are a lot of towns that are sort of getting behind that philosophy, right? Or a lot of attractions that are saying, oh my gosh, like eight months of the year, it's colder. We can't, you know, thrive on four months of activity. What else can we do? And so if you've been to Steinbach before, perhaps you might go there uh, in the summer. They've got a great pool area. There's a great golf course in the area, um, some good restaurants that might draw you in. And there's camping in and around the area. And there's also the Mennonite Heritage Village, which, of course, Mennonite's a strong backbone of the Steinbach community, the Mennonite community. And the village is a really cool aspect of that. But at 737, we're going to talk about what they're doing in winter in their own words, People might know them as a summer village to go to, but they're trying to get into the winter season with carnivals and more. And I think, Greg, I mean, week over week, we seem to hear about so many in this province that are doing that. We talked to the Amazing Snow last week, and they now have that winter restaurant where you can dine out in this snow hut and have a meal uh, for a price, but you, you know, you can, you can do that. You've got this snow maze itself. You've got the forks and the river trail. And we talk about Festival de Voyageur a lot. And I think there are other towns. We went to Beauxajour just before Christmas that are saying, hey, we look great. Like, we're, we're a heck of cute towns in the winter. Let's bring people to us. Yeah, well, uh, it's darker, longer as well. So if you can fashion a light display that shows off your accoutrements and your assets, then all the more power to you. And, and Brett, I can look back to some of the very first shows we ever did together talking about how uh, not only – I think the rivers – our, how we embrace and interact with our rivers is something that's changed over the last six, seven years. And how we embrace river, uh, pardon me, how we embrace winter, in particular with the river here in Winnipeg at the Forks. But I think uh, Loren's right. I think we're seeing it across the province. And that's a good thing, too. And Loren mentioned the golf that is in the area of Steinbeck. There's a lot of great golf in that area. And I've mentioned before, that is how I explore southern Manitoba. It's through golf. And as much I do, I enjoy getting outside in the winter, but I will... Now that I think about it, I'm guilty as charged as being one of those people who will look to go to the to step outside of the perimeter highway only when it's night, like in the summertime. I never think to go 
to a, a winter destination outside of Winnipeg, mm-hmm. unless I'm, it's for golf. <laughs> if, if I bet you if somebody was doing like a winter golf, which has been done before, <laughs> sure has. snow golf, I, I would probably do that. But otherwise, I don't really think about it. So I'm glad that we are looking at these these cool things that that our, our, our neighboring communities are doing because maybe they'll get somebody like me to get off my couch and into my car and go visit somewhere else as opposed to just going for a walk in my neighborhood. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be super physical, right? Like you talk about the and I'm not trying to say golf isn't physical, but it's it's more casual. It's not as intense. It's intense with your attitude, but and the stress it might put on you. But you know, there's all <laughs> sorts of things that you're doing that don't have to be like this big romp in the snow. You know, we did the tubing in the portage area. My kids are going to tubing in Falcon Lake, Manitoba today. Like there's all these different things that are fun. And good for you, but are, aren't always intense. And I think we look at, we wake up and we see the forecast and we sometimes just go, oh, just put your head down and get through it. As opposed to put your head up, get out there and have fun with it. Yeah, one of my boys is heading to Mississippi for a ski weekend. Uh, not this weekend, but next. He cannot wait. And I don't think I've sent you guys the pictures of what he's wearing on the slopes, but. Uh, I think I've told you guys about my Barney outfit that I used to wear on the slopes back in the day. Yeah. He's uh, he's breaking it out. Purple is the color on the slopes. Circa 1990s. Is this a full full body purple suit? He's got two options. He's got the full purple one piece. Okay. And if it's a little colder, I've still got my Mobius ensemble. <laughs> With the purple pants and a predominantly purple jacket with the the neon green, neon orange (laughs) patches. So you really stand out on the slopes. So I used to have, one of my cousins was on the national ski team. And she was a really great skier, like was all over the world skiing. And she would get some of her hand-me-downs, which was like kick awesome outfits, you know, that you'd wear on the slopes. Except for we can't really ski. So you just get out there like all dolled up. And people like, you look, you must be good. And then you do this slow like pizza pie thing down the slopes, like back and forth. And pizza, great, French fries, pizza, you know, French fries. Right, exactly. And I just loved it. So I'm just picturing you in this sweet, sweet 1980s ensemble. I'll and I'm you, loving it. I'll send you a picture in the break. Why do you yeah. even still have the outfit? Because it's great. Ta- don't take Jackie's side. That's what, the grad, that's what the garage is for, Brett. That's what Jackie says. Why do you even have all this stuff? It's a great question. Why, why would I throw it away? Uh, for what, under what circumstances would I look at it and go, this belongs in the garbage? It does not. That's- and now your kid is making it worse, Brad. He's making it worse for Greg's oh, wife. because Validating. He's it- yes, it's validation <laughs> that he's hung on to this for 30 years. And oh, see, if I'd thrown that out, what on earth would our child wear in the snow? <laughs> It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Right now we want to tell you about how a hard-working toddler in Quinnell, B.C. has attracted quite a lot of fans on TikTok. Yeah, the little guy has gone viral and even attracted celebrity attention for helping his mother unload empty water jugs for the family's business. Global's Ted Field reports. Like many mothers, Tamara Pelletier likes taking videos of her son Thomas doing cute things. The 15-month-old hangs around with mom and co-workers at the family business, Caribou Water, and he likes helping haul the water jugs. We have the delivery truck come and go a couple times a day, and we load it up in the morning, and we unload it throughout the day, and he just watches and likes to help pack the jugs around. (laughs) 
Tamara posted video on TikTok and it went wild, over 30 million hits. It's a very amateur TikTok video and it just exploded. Many liked the toddler's work ethic, but comedian Howie Mandel posted his apparently tongue-in-cheek view of toddler labor. He doesn't get any benefits, any health benefits, um, yet um, he puts in a full work day. It's tough to get people working, it's tough to get kids involved, and it just, that whole message just blew up, I feel. Co-workers are impressed by Thomas. I kind of joke sometimes that I think that he knows this business better than we all do. I like to move it, move it. But for millions, the video was simply a cute diversion. And to those folks, Thomas and Tamara, say thank you. Ted Field, Global News. This is the cutest story. What we're talking about is a toddler. You know, he's not even two years old. He's picking up those big blue water jugs that many of us have in our homes or you might have in your business. We have one as our water cooler. Now, they don't have the water in it, but he's basically the same size as these jugs. And in one of the shots, he's like, you know, two fist in it, holding two of the jugs as he carries them in. And sure, it's cute. But I think it also is just this idea that, you know, there are many working parents out there. And if you run a small business, man, you, you definitely grew up in your parents' store or in their restaurant or at their place of work, you would have been there. And maybe it's just the idea that it's cute because it's a kid doing work, but it's also, I think, people like to see a bit of young age chores. Like, he's 50 months. I get it. He's he's not, not always about the lesson. But there maybe is a bit of one here, Greg. Yeah, and you can see the spirit in his face. He's yes. just happy to be helping out. He gets his little shovel out. There's no snow to shovel, but he's, you know, he's diligently, in quotation marks, making sure that the front of the store is cleaned up and there's no snow. And just, you know, I, I just love the spirit, the idea that that he wants to lend a helping hand. And and this this kid only has nothing but a bright future, Brett. Could this also fuel, because he, he's getting started on this so early, could this help develop uh, real, like a solid work ethic for this kid? I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah. Well, I I will think about all the toys. I don't know if this was like this when you guys grew up or with your own kids, Greg, but a lot of the toys have are, are vacuum toys, lawnmower toys, like it's like so that you can show your kid. Play you know, store, dad's, play mom restaurants. Or dad's, right. Mom and dad are going out to do the yard, bring out your lawnmower, and you know, you're vacuuming, and you're like, bring out the vacuum. I will say, I did all those things as a kid, and when I say, can you guys please vacuum the basement now, there is some... <sighs> so you do, do do these things to build a strong work ethic, but it doesn't mean they're suddenly going to see, like, come, let's revisit this kid in 10 years and see if he sees those empty jugs, <laughs> if he goes and refills them. Or, you know, where that takes them. Because you can show, show kids a lot of things. But it, it it starts at that age of saying, the house doesn't run without everybody helping out. Why do I have run. to do everything? <laughs> I did that yesterday. <laughs> do like, it do again. Have, do you have a chore growing up, Brett, that you can recall hating? Dusting. I hated yeah? dusting. Yeah, because my mom had all kinds of uh, little, tiny little mm. ornaments. Mm-hmm. And so each one would have to be picked up and dusted, and it would just take forever. It really was. You had that... to go around. Oh like yeah, you'd go around them, and mom would come back and be like, "Did you just go around these? Yeah, Did totally. You pick them up? Yeah, hated <laughs> dusting. Still hate it. I, I, I would, would still be that guy who says, "Oh, come on." <laughs> Can we just relax? I don't feel like cleaning up right now. In your own apartment, he's talking to himself. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't even Brett, have to do You have do to do dust. This. I don't want to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you.
Right now, we want to... Well, hey, as we've been telling you this week, there's a recent report that shows that over 20% of Manitoba children live in poverty. So there's all different scenarios with that. That could mean there might be a roof over their head, but hardly any comforts under that roof. Maybe enough to scrape by, but no extras or, or no extras, period. Like not enough for the necessities, right? Not enough cash for food, warm clothes, not enough cash to catch the bus to get to school or work. And it's been talked about through a number of studies that the effects of living in poverty can last for years. It can impact your health and it can impact your future bottom line because then there's this cycle of poverty. You might grow up in poverty and then have a harder time getting out of poverty. And there's all sorts of barriers to that, right? Like access to nutritious food, transportation, schools. And we're going to touch on a bunch of that throughout the day. But first, we just want to talk about that number you referenced, Brett, and that the fact that experts have been saying for years, we can reduce the number of kids in poverty. Global's Tegan Rasha has more. It's almost like we have the solution to end poverty for families and we're choosing not to do it. Michael Redhead Champagne sees the struggles thousands of Manitoba children living in poverty face. 20.68% or 1 in 5 children live in poverty in this province, 7 percentage points higher than the national average. Redhead Champagne believes there are solutions to these staggering numbers, starting with a look back on 2020. CERB is a great example of how governments can work together to successfully end child poverty. And if we can do it in a pandemic, we should be able to do it today. Because pandemic CERB payments helped ease child poverty during the pandemic, the Manitoba Liberals say we need to start talking about a guaranteed annual income. We've proposed two things. One is to say, look, create jobs programs so people can get a, a decent paying job that, that helps them contribute. And a lot of those have been cancelled. But the other is we just need to bring our social assistance payments up to date. Meanwhile, the provincial NDP believes possible solutions to child poverty include breakfast programs in schools, access to education and housing. We have hundreds of units that are boarded up right now that uh, this PC government should be working on fixing up and getting families in those housing units. Defending her party's track record, Manitoba's Minister of Families says the government has taken many steps to reduce poverty, including raising minimum wage, raising basic personal exemption, and making childcare more affordable. More work needs to be done, absolutely, and we are going to be putting forward a variety of initiatives in Budget 23 that will be unveiled in the weeks to come that will lift more Manitobans out of poverty. But until no Manitoba children live in poverty, those on the front lines, like Redhead Champagne, will keep fighting for a better future. Without the education and mental health supports, it's really difficult for me to imagine how families currently living in poverty are going to get out of it. Tegan Rasha, Global News. For as long as I can remember, Manitoba has led the country in this statistic, and if it's not first, it's second. And Hal Anderson referenced that, that Manitoba, since he began broadcasting... Last century that this has been the case. Manitoba's led the country one or two in terms of child poverty. And I think we can all agree that the window of opportunity, the window of time to positively impact our young people and give them the tools that they need to 
always talk about taking the next step, right? Do you want the, the next generation to take the next step in terms of education and economic prosperity? If, if mom and dad only made it to, to grade 12 and got, you know, a high school diploma, you want the next generation to go to college or university and, and you continually want your next generation to improve upon, to build upon the legacy of what's created. But Loren, we know that it can work in the exact opposite situation. You mentioned the fact that there's generational poverty in a cycle of poverty, and it's perfectly evident in this province, and, and I don't know what's taking so long for people to come around to the idea of maybe if we do too much for a little while, we can back things off, but it's clear we're not doing enough. And it's simple, too. We're going to talk about the barriers throughout the day that, that are out there. And some of them are downright discriminatory, just the, the lack of access to really, really simple things. And so we're going to talk about breakfast programs. You know, you want to start your day off right. How many times have you seen the headline, breakfast, most important meal of the day? And I know many of us ignore that. But I'll speak for my kids. When If they don't eat to get their day going, I know it's going to be a rough day. They're not going to be able to concentrate as much. They're not going to be able to listen in school as well. And it's going to impact them. And so we're going to talk about breakfast programs in schools where the need has almost doubled in this province in the last couple of years. The demand is way up. And then we're going to talk about just the idea that, you know, here we are, we talk about poverty, we talk about helping kids, and then we create systems that sometimes make it harder. And 837, this is an idea that comes from Greg, because you were referencing it yesterday, this idea that we have thousands of kids in care. There's another category that we've unfortunately led the country on. We, we have a disproportionate number of kids in care compared to other provinces, 10 to 11,000 on any given year. And we have a place, a system that when you hit 18, and there's some rule, you know, you can bend this a little bit, but, but essentially once you hit 18, you age out of the foster system. Now imagine being 18 years old. You, you might not even be done high school yet. Mm-hmm. And you might be in a program that says, okay, well, you got to go find a place to live, get on the bus yourself, find a way to f- feed and clothe yourself. Go. You're an adult now. Live. Wow. Here we are talking about all the ways we're supporting our 18, 19, 25, 30-year-olds in perpetuity, it seems, in some cases, Greg and Brett. And we create a system that tells kids in care that that there's little supports once you hit a certain age. And so we're going to get into that and, and try to understand the rules later in the show because what are we expecting into that system if that's how it works? I know there are a lot of people who have the attitude, once my kids are 18, they're out the door. Well, right. that's not the case. The boomerang generation, we know that uh, we do stories all the time, Brett, on the idea of mom and dad p- still paying rent or co-signing for a mortgage or or putting the down payment, etc. Imagine not having a support system, somebody that you can go to when you when things are the toughest. And that's what we're talking about with thousands of Manitoba kids that are you know legally adults but they're but they're still kids it is mackling mcgarry mcnab at just after six fifteen, we told you a story about a bc toddler who was working in his parents shop helping carry out the empty water jugs it's really cute if you want to see the story head to cjob.com or globalnews.ca but that is going to launch a conversation now about your first job or one of your earlier jobs. We'd like to hear a story about your first job or one of your earlier jobs. Maybe you liked your first job, but then your second job was crap. 
or something happened. I don't know. 204-780-6868. Did you ever work in conditions where you weren't getting paid properly like this child, as Howie Mandel pointed out? No benefits, not getting paid, just being worked to the bone all day long. 204-780-6868 for a chance to win tickets to see the chicks. The world tour comes to Winnipeg September 12th. Jeff Braun, why don't we start with you, sir? Uh, my first job was a paper boy, but my first real job that I, I consider was uh, just working part-time in the book factory in Altona at Friesen's. My dad got me a job in the pre-production department, and I got to do the most mundane jobs they had there that they're like, even, a, even, even dumb little JV can do this job. It would be like punching holes in giant sheets of acetate for eight hours straight, just thousands and thousands of sheets. Um, but I could listen to my Walkman, so I didn't mind it that much. It what okay. is... Acetate? Uh, just like a big sheet of plastic that they would use for uh, in the process of uh, pre-production. I don't know how a book is made. I worked there for so long, but I still didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> and I don't think it's even a job anymore. I think most of the stuff I used to do is either done on a computer or they get the acetate you know, pre-punched from the factory. Oh, okay. Well, uh, how old were you when you had that job? I was a teenager. It was good, good beer money and smoke money. <laughs> I'm right sure on. that's the idea your your dad had when he oh, got yeah. you that job. Absolutely. <laughs> Poitras, what about you? Well, we got to worry about people because, you know, this pre-punched acetate's putting people out of work. Um, uh, <laughs> my first uh, job, well, like, listen, when I was like, I never had a summer since I was 12 because my mom, coming from the colony, uh, wasn't born there, but my grandparents were. Uh, Hofers from the colony. There was there was like no option for me to sit around during the summer. My mom would say, "There is no way my son sons with my twin brothers roped up in this too. There's no way my sons are going to be sitting around lazy all summer. It's just not going to happen." So I had to go and work for my grandfather, and I'd go shovel gravel and like build forms, and that's what I did from like all, all the way until I was twenty, and I moved away and did radio jobs for the first time. That was, those those were my entire summers. I had my weekends, of course, and long weekends. Um, but like that was my, that was my youth sucked up into, you know, shoveling gravel and busting my butt. And did you ever get paid? Oh yeah, of course I got paid. I remember the, like the first big purchase my brother and I made with our, we were rolling in cash. Right. So that was obviously (laughs) a good thing. We bought an Xbox 360 and I told my grand and I told my papa how much I spent on it. And he went, oh, boy, how could you, that much? <laughs> he was just blown away. And I'm like, Grandpa, it's like video game. You don't, like, but he was just like, he was totally floored by it. Did he threaten to claw back your wages at that point? No, no, no. He just thought we were nuts. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, you learned, uh, again, the work hey. ethic came early. I guess so, yeah, unfortunately. Mackling, I don't know. You have worked so many jobs. I'm curious to know which one you're going to pull out of the archive. Well, I've been lucky. I've worked in family businesses off and on forever since I was a, since I was a little kid. I worked uh, side by side with my grandpa building stuff. I worked for my mom and her restaurants when I was in my thirties, helping her out, uh, help my dad and my stepmom with their coffee shop in Minidosa years ago. But the first job outside of Paperboy was working for my dad and his concession business back when I was 12. Mm-hmm. We did popcorn and candy floss and candy apples, and we would go to the mall or we'd go to fairs around Manitoba, or in the winter, we'd do these winter carnivals, and I got paid a dollar an hour. Big money. It was big bucks, and the best was working in Brandon at the Shoppers Mall in the uh, back-to-school uh, scenario. Uh, selling and serving the popcorn and the candy floss, I'd get my $5 for my first five hours of work and then 
walk across the 18th Street to go to the mm. brand new Burger King oh. and spend my $5 on my own lunch. Wow. That was the best when you were 12 <laughs> or 13 years old. Yeah, I never learned anything bad in those days. Like, I mean, no. looking back, I got so close with my uncles too, which I, I appreciate to this day. Loren, what about you? Oh, I'm, there were so many little firsts along the way. Of course, growing up on the farm, there were little chores. One of my first jobs was paid by my mom, who we were looking for cash. And I want to say we were in grade six and seven, my sister and I. And she said, fine, every other Thursday, I will pay you guys $15 to clean the house. And I want at least two hours of work. And so she was actually willing to give us 15 bucks an hour, which is a ton. That's not even the minimum wage now. But she was so hard to clean for. Like, it was toothbrushes in the corner and little different cloths or different parts of the house that I think we lasted just a few weeks before. Like, we're out. Clean it yourself. Like, this is not worth the money. And so eventually I got a job at Chicken Terry's for five bucks an hour. And I've said this to you guys before. I loved working there. We had my sister worked there. At one point, my brother, one of my brothers worked there. I had lots of friends that worked there. Um, he was a good employer for kids growing up. But... It was five bucks an hour, and to this day, every once in a while, if I go to buy something, I'll think, man, that is like nine hours of schlepping chicken just to buy that shirt. I don't know if that's <laughs> worth it, because that first job sort of defines how you define money, if that makes sense. You know, you, that first paycheck makes you think, oh, that's what things cost. And so I do think in Chicken Terry's hours. The math is, is done by chicken. Well, if the, if the first job defines how you view money, then I guess my my view that I developed was burn it. Just burn through this paycheck. It's gone. <laughs> the second I get it, it's wasted. Um, Jeff Forte, what about you? Uh, my first job was at Little Caesars, and I believe uh, Cam. Cam's probably stopped by there when I was working a few oh, times. I saw you back there, yeah, Jeff, that's once right. in a while. But uh, for, for me, it was like... Getting that job. So when I was 15, driving around with my dad and I have my resumes and, you know, going to like Pizza Hut or McDonald's, whatever, trying to hand out my resume wherever I can. And we pull up in front of Little Caesars and there's two employees just sitting outside taking a break. And my dad goes, hey, hey, you guys work there? Can I give you my son's resume? I'm going, dad, stop it. Stop it. Like, you're embarrassing me. Like... (laughs) (laughs) They took my resume, and I was like, okay, we're going to scratch that one off the list, because they're not going to, you know, like, I should be going in and, you know, presenting myself, but no, instead I have my dad yelling at them, like, hey, take my son's resume. (laughs) So I thought I was not getting that job. Well, I ended up getting it. I didn't even have an interview. They just hired me. Really? Yeah, and I worked there for almost six years. You gotta love a parent's best intentions. I know when I got my job here at CJOB, my dad had helped me out with uh, typing up the resume because we didn't have a typewriter <laughs> at home, so he did it at work. And there were spelling mistakes in there because he spelled video V I D I O. I was like, Dad, I'm never gonna get a job. He's like, Nah, no one will notice. I was like, Okay. <laughs> He's laughing now. Oh boy, that's funny. When you submitted it, did you say that your dad typed it up for you? No, I just uh, I just played it down. I was like, maybe didn't read that far. Maybe didn't see it. <laughs> in case you're just tuning in, we're asking you to tell us a story about your first job or one of your first jobs for a chance to win tickets to see the Chicks on September 12th. What does Shane say, Greg? First job was cleaning puck marks off the boards at Notre Dame Arena, summer cleaning and maintenance. So uh, full disclosure here, I've known Shane since he was about six years old, and I always think of him as one of the good kids from the old neighborhood, from the West End, and he goes on to say, my uncle was in charge of maintenance. My bonus was all the Czechoslovakian pucks I could fit in a five-gallon bucket. 
Then I donate them to the Isaac Brock snowbanks in the winter. Shane was quite the hockey player back in his day. <laughs> Keep those stories coming for a chance to win those tickets. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. Now, if education is a critical path for individuals to break the cycle of poverty, can we agree that ensuring our young people attend school under the best possible circumstances is part of building that path? So in this segment, we want to tell you about a program which is aiding in those two pieces of the better education puzzle. Yeah, so this is through a culinary arts program at R.B. Russell Vocational High School, and it's working to feed students in their community, but also providing educational opportunities for all walks of life. So at the school, they not only offer a culinary arts program for high school students, there's an adult program that's tuition free, and that gets the students level one accredited. And then both classes, they all work together to prepare nutritious meals to feed students who would otherwise go hungry. And it's worth noting here, there are thousands of kids in this province who really rely on these programs. The Nutrition Council, the Child Nutrition Council of Manitoba tells me that five years ago, 28,000 students were accessing food programs at schools in this province. To date, there's more than 41,000 students. So in the last five years alone, Greg, the need for breakfast or lunch programs at schools has jumped 46%. Well, let's speak to Chef Michael Lindbergh. He oversees the adult program at R.B. Russell Vocational School and joins us now on The Start. Chef, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, thanks for doing what you do, and we appreciate you making time for us. Many of our discussions around food these days focus on the costs at the grocery store or on the other end of the spectrum. We're we're celebrating the embarrassment of Winnipeg's culinary riches. How important is food as a a fuel for our little ones and their brains, Chef? Oh, it's everything. I mean, uh, mean, I I grew up always having something on my table, uh, you know, in the mornings and the afternoons and stuff like that. So I, I never experienced that. Um, so I had the privilege to not have to deal with that. But, you know, a lot of the students that I deal with and in this community, um, sometimes they don't have anything uh, in their bellies when they get to school. So uh, when you're hungry, you're not focusing, uh, you're not at your top peak and uh, you, you need to eat, right? So uh, what we do here is we offer a free breakfast program for our, uh, for any student body that shows up between 8.30 and, and 8.55. Um, and it's prepared here by the culinary arts students. Um, and it gets our students off to a good start and ready to learn. You know, Chef, there's a reason why there's that whole phrase, hangry, coined for a reason, right? That adults with maturity and and years of life behind us still struggle when we're hungry to focus and do our jobs properly. And now we're asking little kids to potentially come to school and focus when they haven't even had the first meal of the day. So can you tell us some of the stories of of the kids you're seeing, the kids you're helping? And you mentioned that I think anyone could show up and access the program. Is that right? Absolutely. Anybody that comes to our school has access to this program. Um, As long as they get here between 830 and 855, which sometimes is a hurdle too, right? Um, you don't know exactly what's going on in the houses and, you know, they, they may not be on the, the, the right sleeping patterns and whatnot. So even getting here on time is tough at times. So uh, when they do get here, you know, they're very thankful that uh, they're getting the food that they're getting, um, always saying thanks. And, you know, it, it, it actually gets them started to a, a good start. What are you making for them? Oh, everything. I mean, we, we have a curriculum that we have to, that we have to hit. So, you know, every day our, 
our breakfast program rotates. It's, it's hot breakfast. It's not just cereal and, you know, juice and, and fruit. It's, you know, like yesterday we were on Global and, you know, they, they, they did a, a showcase on us and we did like bacon cheddar omelets uh, for breakfast with hash browns. Today we got uh, strawberry glazed French toast with fresh fruit. So we bring fresh fruit in every day. Uh, so there's a nutritious start, um, you know, and our lunches are full of, of great nutrients, too. We, we try to do everything from scratch as best as possible here uh, because it is a culinary arts program. So, you know, they're making, you know, our sandwich meat isn't just coming out of a bag. It's actually they're roasting the roast in house and slicing it in here. Nothing is processed, uh, you know, so we, we, we try to make it nutritious, but also, you know, hitting the points that, you know, our students are getting the right education when they leave here. Now, we know that the service industry, restaurants in particular, are facing staffing shortages. So maybe just tell us a bit more about the, the, the full culinary arts program and the employment opportunities that come out of it. Oh, great opportunities. You know, we have hardworking people here at our school. Uh, we have employability uh, uh, coordinators that help us get uh, our, our students in work experience. So it's not just for my trade. It's for all the trades that we do at our school. Um, so they're getting out. They're getting work experience. Uh, they're making those connections. And then, you know, at that point, hopefully they, they made enough connections to get the job afterwards. Um, or if they're just experiencing that trade, uh, just to get, you know, that experience of going to work and showing up and getting those 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 uh, those basic skills that you need to succeed after they're done here. Um, but as far as our trade goes, you know, we uh, we. We, we, we're very comprehensive in what we do, and, you know, our, our students are, are hire, getting hired pretty pretty regularly. Um, the pandemic kind of hurt that a little bit because they weren't going out on work experience at that point. Uh, but now we've recovered that, and we're creating some really good relationships. And, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of people reaching out to us through our providers that are, that are connecting us, um, just through connections we have in the, in the industry. And, uh it got a lot of people asking for students uh, coming out of our program, which is a really good sign. Chef, uh, before we let you run here, I spent a lot of time in the restaurant business from a very young age. And a lot of the people that I know that I worked with that in industry credit their their success in business, in their in their working history, in their, in their work life with the time they spent in the restaurant industry. I, I highly recommend it as a proving ground, even if you don't want to work in that industry full time. Would you back me up on that? 100%. So many students and people that are like even paying their way through university and stuff like that get their start there. So um, I have students that are in my program that are looking just to get uh, some education to get them into a job that they could pay for their next career, you know? So um, all these things are venues and avenues that they could use to get a successful uh, career when they're done. Chef Michael Lindbergh at RB Russell Vocational High School. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks. Anytime. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. If you had a photograph of your first job, what would it be? We're asking you to tell us about your first job or one of your first jobs. Doesn't have to be the first job, but Clint uh, told a story that reminded me of something dumb that I once did when I was a teenager trying to get a job. Clint says, I was just 15 years old in 1995, got a job at my local pharmacy in Westwood. I was just a stock boy, so I'd clean up, stock shelves, do whatever. 
I'd rollerblade to work and do my shift three to four hours. I hated it. I hated it. It was boring. I didn't like people telling me what to do. And I guess it showed because the boss pulled me aside after two weeks and asked, so how are you liking it here? (laughs) And me being a naive 15-year-old, I gave an honest answer. Well, it's work. It's not the best. Boss said, yeah, well, you can take the rest of the day off then. So I rollerbladed home, told my mom. Didn't hit me until then that I had been fired. (laughs) Oops. Learned a lesson that day. We're freeing up your future. (laughs) It's not a prison, as one boss once told me. Oh, yeah? My favorite saying was, uh, so how do you like doing that? That's not my favorite. Don't worry about it. The new guy will do it. Yeah? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Good morning, Woody. (laughs) (laughs) So this reminded me of uh, when I was 15 trying to get my first job. I had just... Perkins was doing open interviews. So I went and sat down and started chatting, and the, the question came up, so what would, what would you describe as one of your character flaws? And I said, well, kind of have a problem with authority. I looked the look on his face. I realized immediately the stupidity of what I had just said, and I just sat, I got up, thanked him for his time, and I walked out. Which oh, location boy. was that? Uh, the one on uh, Lajemodier. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a problem with people. Well, that turned out. I did turn out to learn that in the course of working in various customer service jobs. <laughs> I'm like uh, the guy in Clerks who says this job would be would be great if it weren't for the customers. <laughs> But you get that, right? You walk into a, a place of service and sometimes you're like, you really don't want to be here. Like, are you like, am I making your day harder? I don't get it. Sometimes it's just a job, I guess. Small town salute with a question. How can we better thrive in winter? It's a question we've been asking ourselves for years now, not just at this station, but right across the city and province. And I think in recent years, we've really seen Manitoban step up. We're not just talking about getting out there and doing things, but creating things for other people to do. So we talked about the amazing corn, the amazing snow, now having that outdoor snow restaurant for you to dine in. Next week, Festival de Voyageurs starts this weekend, really. We'll have thousands of people outside for concerts, games, and more. And as we speak, Greg, there's actually a conference on building thriving winter cities that's underway in downtown Winnipeg, and we're going to work to learn more about that in the hours ahead, but here we are embracing winter. Yeah, so it's not just a Manitoba question. It's a winter cities. It's a winter regions question. And all sorts of communities and businesses are getting in on the act, which brings us to this week's Small Town Salute and the Mennonite Heritage Village in Steinbach. It's a popular destination in summer, but over the past few years, it's been working on its winter programming. And this weekend is its annual winter carnival. We are pleased to welcome from the Mennonite Heritage Village in Steinbach, Robert Gertzen. Robert, good morning. Good morning. So uh, I like to golf in Steinbach every once in a while as well. So I know where the village is. But for those that do not know, uh, you know, about taking the, the trip that's worthwhile to Steinbach, how do we well, get there? Uh, yeah, if you uh, head, uh, I guess, down the number one from, from the Mint, if you head east, uh, down the number one uh, till you get to the number 12 and uh, turn south. It's, uh, I don't know, some, some say 30 minutes, some say 40 minutes. Uh, it's, it's not very far. It's a, a great place to visit uh, summer and winter. Let's talk about the village. Like what, describe what it looks like. If, if you're to show up summer or winter, 
let's start in the summer. What would I see? Because yeah, I know well, that's where you get the bulk of your tourists, and, and you're yeah, working to change that. Of course, that. yeah. We are uh, well known for our summer festivals. We have many of them, and uh, I guess the, the premier festivals are the uh, Pioneer Days Festival on the August long weekend and, and the Fall on the Farm on the September long weekend. Those are some of our premier uh, times, and, and we have an outdoor village. Uh, it's uh, uh, we're uh, our museum is uh, focused on uh, telling the story of early settlers and especially Mennonite settlers to southern Manitoba. So, so that would be 1870s and all the way up to the 1920s. Uh, we've got some buildings that date back to the early 1880s and uh, and others that. Uh, were our replicas or originals from later on in the 1920s. But, uh, yeah, it, it's like going down, uh, I guess, an, an old uh, west uh, main street. You'll see shops on one side and some, some old house structures on the other side. So if I were to come there on a weekend in the winter, what would I be able to do? So uh, we don't open up uh, these heritage buildings in wintertime. Uh, it just uh, would... Uh, lead to more deterioration and so on. But we, our outdoor activities are, are wide open. We've got nearly 40 acres of, of uh, space here. So we've really been developing our outdoor activities. We've, uh, we've got snowshoe rentals and we've got uh, skating rink and uh, bonfire. And, and uh, on the weekends, we, we run uh, horse-drawn sleigh rides. So some of those things happen every weekend uh, in wintertime, and uh, this weekend we're just putting it all together, and, and uh, on top of that, we're making it accessible for everyone. We're making it free admission. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if anyone has mentioned the, the giant windmill, which is sort of, I think of as the iconic uh, building on that site. Whenever I see that, it, it fascinates me. So talk about uh, the Winter Carnival. Is there anything happening this weekend that doesn't happen uh, otherwise in the winter? Yeah, we've added a lot of programming. Uh, of course, outdoors, we'll have, uh, we'll have games, uh, contests, and and uh, there's a oh we've also developed a, a light display a colored light display and so that's fantastic down the main street and and uh, uh, we've got a tunnel in one area and and you know trees lit up and so on so from four o'clock till eight p.m. if you're in later on in the afternoon you'll see some of those fantastic uh, light displays so that's great as well that's something that's running un- until. Uh, until the end of February and, and into March. But, uh, yeah, this, this weekend we've got a hot food canteen and, and indoor games if, it, if it's too cold, if you need a break from the outdoors. And we've got uh, uh, special entertainment all weekend long. We've, we've got family shows, uh, kids' shows uh, each day at 2 o'clock, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then we've got some live music uh, at 4 o'clock. And so we'll be enjoying all of those things uh, indoors. And, uh, yeah, we've, on Monday we've actually got uh, a workshop that's uh, for everybody. It's a $5 workshop if you, if you like uh, doing some creative things. Uh, our ex- special exhibit is on floor patterns and how some of the early Mennonite settlers, uh, they didn't have a lot, but they, they made uh, beautiful floor patterns in their kitchen area. And so that's one of the, that's our uh, special exhibit uh, uh, right now, and we've got a, We've got a kids and family uh, workshop that will will kind of let you practice some of those things. Use you know whether you're making uh, the patterns out of out of uh, 
you know, potatoes where you cut a something out of there and then paint it, and uh, or other things. There's also some sawdust paint, uh, which I'm not exactly sure what it is, but that'd be very interesting to find out. <laughs> I like uh, the sounds also, of this. Yeah, that's also something that's open to everyone. Just something to try uh, your hand at. Robert, before we let you go, you know, lots going on throughout the winter at the Mennonite Heritage Village. It is, of course, the Winter Carnival this weekend. But I'm just curious, you know, it seems to me that it's finally like everybody in this province has agreed, hang on, we have way more time in winter than we do summer. We need to do better in terms of getting people out in winter. So how has that been embraced in Steinbach? Because in some ways, I think we seem to push back on winter and pretend we need to spend all our time indoors. That's right. I mean, often we hear about the 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 busy season or so on and we want to make winter our busy season as well so so we're really working at uh at developing programming uh for the outdoors as well as as doing indoor things uh throughout the winter to to keep people busy uh whether that's uh uh learning some of the pioneer skills or different things like that so so we're developing uh programming that will be uh, accessible uh all winter long and of course, we're open uh, all winter long. Our main galleries and our special exhibits are open. We're open Tuesday to Saturday on a regular basis from 9 to 5. And so this weekend is just a special weekend where we're open all weekend long. And does that include the holiday Monday? That's right, yes. Yeah, we're uh, open 9 to 8 on Saturday, uh, 12 to 8 on Sunday, and 9 to 8 on Monday. Robert Gertzen with the Mennonite Heritage Village in Steinbach heading into the Winter Carnival this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. It sounds like a blast. Thank you for uh, your interest. It is 746 with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. I'm uh, trying to figure out what sawdust paint is as well. Uh, looks cool. Like, like Some of the painting? artwork I'm seeing is, is amazing. I'm just thinking when he says that painting by its very nature can be messy, and then we're <laughs> throwing sawdust into it. I just feel like it's a recipe for a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I don't know what that is either. I just know those painted floors. My mom and my stepdad's house in uh, Boys Vane is one of those old Eaton houses mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. turn of the 19th century, and all their floors, instead of carpets, uh, you know, when they moved in, all had all the rooms had painted floors. It was amazing, the art that, that uh, was left behind. That is cool. We're asking you to tell us a story about your first job or one of your first jobs for a chance to win those tickets. We will pick a winner at 9.15. But right now, any given year in this province, there are, on average, ten to 11,000 kids in care. Once they hit the age of 18, the support changes. For years, it was the cutoff for kids in care, the year they aged out of the system and potentially right out of the foster home. In recent years, transition programs have been put in place, Loren, to help kids in care up to the age of 21, but that financial support isn't automatic. Yeah, there's still a lot of gaps that we need to touch on, and I think we can all agree, moving out on your own, as thrilling as it's supposed to be at any age, it's also equally terrifying. And now imagine you're moving out with potentially no safety net. Yes, your foster home might be a great situation. We had a listener text this morning that they have a foster child and that child's welcome to stay with them as long as possible. But that's not always the case. Each case is unique and we want to learn more about what is going on with our kids in care. So we're joined now by morning, this morning by Marie Christian, Director of Voices, Manitoba's Youth in Care Network. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. 
and Susan Russell-Chaney, an independent advocate. Hi, Susan. Hi, good morning. So, Marie, I'm, I'll start with you if you could, because we want to just understand how it works. And I get that it's complicated, so I'm going to ask you to simplify it for me as succinctly as you can. But if I'm 18 and in the system and I hit that 18 mark, what haps- happens? What are my options? Okay, so if you turn 18 and you are a temporary ward, meaning your file never became permanent, the temporary ward or a voluntary placement, then essentially you're done. You are hopefully uh, there's a plan for you to launch onto your own, but essentially your supports and services from the agency are finished. If you are 18 and you're a permanent ward, then you are eligible for an AYA, which means agreements with young adults. So there is the possibility of an extension of support and services, but In order for those to be extended, there needs to be a plan in place, whether it's school, whether it's work. You have to create a plan with your agency and demonstrate that you're keeping that plan. And even though you have that um, offer of extended support and services, um, if you're not meeting goals, then those can be withdrawn. Susan, and and thank you, Marie. I think that's clear uh, and and, and something that probably most parents uh, wouldn't mind if their kids would come up with, but probably not always practical and probably not often done. But Susan, tell us about some of the stories you've heard, perhaps even the things you've experienced when it comes to the 18-year-old in care who does, in fact, age out of the system. Great question. Thanks for asking. Um, so I'm going to refer to the cohort of youth in and from carers, my community. Uh, so I'm a youth who's... Or, not a youth anymore, but someone who has left the care system in some way. Uh, And what we've heard from our community is that uh, youth just aren't thriving the way that their peers are who haven't been in care when they leave the the child welfare system. Um, And that includes, uh, I've I've heard that youth have experienced homelessness at staggering numbers. Uh, Youth are five times more likely to to die prematurely that have been in uh, the child welfare system than opposed to their peers who have not had uh, an encounter with the child welfare system. Uh, and some of those other adverse outcomes are just so striking. There's lower education attainment levels, lower employment attainment levels. Um, and those are the stories um, that are also linked to homelessness, uh, which we're, we're here to talk about today. So I'll pass the mic back to you. So, Marie, then, are we setting up kids for failure with this system? In some ways, yes. As you guys mentioned in your intro, there have been a lot of improvements over the years. Um, So now we have more AYAs or extensions of care. Now there are tuition waivers and some living supports that come with those. Um, But it's very limited. So as you also mentioned, there are over 9,000, closer to 10,000 kids in care right now. And... Some of the things that um, that happen in their early years leading up to transitioning from care are what set them up for failure. So a lot of transiency, instability, lack of connection to culture, connection to support, connection to healthy bio family and community. All of those things contribute to turning 18 and not having the resources, support, or the self-confidence to live inter- interdependently as an adult. Yeah, Marie, I'm thinking of myself at 18 and having my mom and dad to call 
And if I needed to, I, I could have asked for cash, you know, in, in the circumstance if I had needed to. And now we're talking mm-hmm. about kids who are in the system who, who might have had great support along the way with their family, but some don't. And so right. the hard part might be for some of those kids that as is, is, try as we might to have put them in a good situation, it may not have always been a good situation for them. And so now they age out of care. I'm curious how many might not want to continue with the support of CFS, which might provide additional barriers or challenges just because of their experiences with the system. Yeah, that happens far too often. A young person's experience in care was so frustrating for them um, that they, when they're presented with the option of, a, of an extension of care, they say no until, <laughs> you know, the day before or the day after they turn, they turn 18 and realize, oh, maybe I did need that support. So one thing that, you know, as youth and care advocates, we ask for is like, let's drop the arbitrary age of 18 because you don't get a magic pill at 18 that makes everything make sense. Um, Kids just need more time and they need to be able to say no because they're angry and frustrated, but to change their mind and say, actually, you know what? I realize I do need the support. So let's just get rid of aging kids out at 18 and continue those supports until they are actually ready and able to flourish on their own. Susan, this is by no, this is not about me, but I can only go based on my own experience. And I know one of my first jobs, we're talking about first jobs this morning. My first jobs were working in a family business or my first restaurant job I got because my aunt got me the job. Uh, When I finished high school, I graduated high school exactly one month after I turned 18. I was not ready to go out on my own. Uh, My my parents helped me out along the way, uh, guidance, and I had mentorship from my grandfather. And it still took me probably till I was 30 before I, I really found my, my way, my path in life. So many kids, period, but kids in care don't have that advantage, don't have mentorship, don't have people that they can turn to when they, when they need a job for that first opportunity. Talk about the challenges uh, of that, of, of sort of being on your own in so many cases and in so many ways. All right. I thank you for describing your experience. I think that uh, a lot of what you described just there falls under uh, what we call a social safety net. So you had community connection, whatever you had employment connection, um, and and you had financial connection that really that allowed you to um, find a place where you felt comfortable and could thrive. Um, something that we're aiming towards changing, uh, or all the advocates across Canada are aiming towards changing, uh, are the standard of which youth leave care and age into. So currently, there's a national project called the Equitable, Equitable Standards for Transitions to Adulthood for Youth in and from Care. Uh, and that includes an eight-pillar approach um, that is very much aligned with uh, the social uh, demographics of health um, and safety that affects young people. The eight pillars were created by youth who have uh, been or aged out of care themselves and uh, really um, push that social safety net idea so that when they leave care at 18, uh, there's something to fall into or fall on that isn't the adverse outcomes that we've all heard about. Um, yeah, I think I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Before we let you guys go, I know I started this off by saying it's not simple. It's not simple to explain, and there and then there aren't easy answers. And I know there's a lot of people like you two doing great work to try to fill those gaps. But Marie, 
is there an answer? If I ask you, is there one thing, like if, if, if government officials are listening now and there's one change that could be made, if we start with one more change, what would it be to help the kids out of care? Because to be cut off at 18 is extraordinary and to, and to only have supports extend to 21 isn't enough for some of these kids either. So what would you ask for? Oh, there's so much that I would ask for. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I appreciate that Susan brought up the equitable standards from transitioning from care because that will really look at the like the policies that need to change in order to support young people better. But I think, you know, the solution is actually a little bit simpler than we might think. It's focusing on relationships, focusing on the relationship between um, everyone the child has in their lives, whether it's their bio family, their community, their agency, their foster parents and staff and caregivers, if we can focus on relationships and nurturing those relationships and ensuring that young people know that they're valued, that they matter, and that the system is going to act in their favor, then that'll just change how we think about and how we organize the child welfare system. But if we keep thinking of young people as just file numbers to hurry up and close and move on, um, then we lose that human touch. So I think we need to really focus on relationships and allow those relationships to bring healing and allow young people to just grow and flourish to their best potential. Marie Christian, Director of Voices, Manitoba's Youth in Care Network. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And to Susan Russell Chaney, an independent advocate, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, inspired by our top story at globalnews.ca. Tiny BC toddler becomes viral TikTok sensation working in his parents' store. It's a really adorable little story, so make sure you have a look at that at uh, globalnews.ca or cjob.com. But we're talking about our first jobs. Tell us a story about one of your first jobs, like Sandy, one of our runners up here for a chance to win tickets for the chicks. Sandy says, I spent the summer working at a pheasant farm when I was 16. I was paid $6 an hour cash, and my first week was eight hours a day of cleaning out old pens, eight inches deep of pheasant, duck, and turkey poop. Gross. From the pen to a wheelbarrow to a truck to a dump site. It was 30 degrees. There was no fresh water, just a broken fridge full of warm lime pop. No. Like, not even just warm pop, but warm lime pop. Like That's not this... quenching your thirst. It's yeah. making you thirstier. Yeah, like, this sound. This doesn't sound like a pheasant farm. It sounds like one of the circles of hell. Sandy says, I'll never forget the smell and taste of the warm pop. And the rest of the summer was scrubbing down his cedar siding with bleach and a wire brush. You stuck it out through the whole summer. I commend you, Sandy. Well done, Job's Sandy. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's something you got to get done. That's, yeah, that's what the boss tells you. <laughs> Better than no job at all. Sherry had a tough job too, Loren. Well, the first line of her story made me think this sounded like a great job. Sherry said, when I was around 15, I spent the summer promoting a new Pringles flavor. So at first I thought, guys, that she meant she was a taste tester. That's what or I something. thought too. Right. So I was like, oh, what's the problem, Sherry? <laughs> Sherry goes on to say... I had to dress as the Pringles mascot and stand for eight hours at different stores around the city. Kids are mean. So many would hit and kick me thinking it was funny. The only padding I had was the big head. My shins were just one big bruise by the end of summer. It was very hot and painful. Worst job I ever had. As an aside, you asked what was the flavor. 
Corn chips, Sherry says. They lasted a year and then they were off the shelf. They were also <laughs> terrible. Bad job, bad chip flavor. <laughs> I meant to follow up with Sherry and ask if she uh, had ever eats Pringles anymore. If it's one of those things that's like, no, I'm done with Pringles for the rest of my life. And coot, by the way, for anybody who has to wear those mascot costumes, mm-hmm. out, like to stand on the side of the road and spin a sign around saying, come buy our pizza or come to our car wash or whatever. Good for you. That cannot be. Just just thinking about it is making me start to sweat. Yeah. Do uh, they work? Like, have you ever seen someone spinning one of those signs and suddenly like, I got to go in there? Not me personally, but, you know, when you see there was a guy, he, he didn't wear a suit, but they used to stand at the corner of Regent and Plessy's to, for Little Caesars. I remember that. Promoting the hot and ready. Yep. And I remember when, I think they must have worked because everybody was suddenly talking about hot and ready pizza at Little Caesars. And uh, That yeah. guy had some good dance moves too, didn't he? That's right, yeah. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a great dancer. <laughs> anyway, he was really into it. <laughs> Uncle Tim, though, Greg, is our winner. Oh, this is fantastic. Thanks for this story. Uh, one of the one of my first jobs as a teenager was working banquets, getting them set up, serving, then cleaning up at the International Inn. That summer, the YMHA Sportsman's Dinner was held with the late Jesse Owens being the guest of honor. We weren't supposed to mingle with the guests, but I was a sports guy, and this was the Jesse Owens. He met and spoke to everyone that wanted to meet with him, Kept my eye on the line over the evening as we all cleaned up after after dinner. When the line was empty, I introduced myself, shook his hand, met him, got his autograph on a menu left behind, and had a short conversation and got a smile from the great Jesse Owens. I'm still very, very thankful. What a great, what an incredible story. And just in case you're wondering who's Jesse Owens, because you might not, because this goes back a, a long way. Legendary track and field athlete, a black man who won four gold medals in 1936. He was the most successful athlete at those games. And as a black American man, he was credited, uh, and I'm just reading this from Wikipedia, but he was credited with single-handedly crushing Hitler's myth of Aryan supremacy. So he won on the international stage at a really uh, important time in history. So Some people call him the greatest athlete of all time. That's so cool that you got to meet him, Uncle Tim. Great story. Congratulations. You're going to see the chicks. The Winnipeg Jets have made their way east for the next six days as they continue their quest for first place in the Central Division and the Western Conference. Yeah, four-game Eastern Conference road trip gets underway tonight. The Jets are riding a three-game winning streak as they prepare for tonight's game in Columbus versus Patrick Laine and the Blue Jackets yesterday. Paul Edmonds discussed Winnipeg's home ice prowess as one of only four teams in the league with 20 or more home ice wins so far this season. Mitchell Clinton covers the Jets for Jets TV and joins us now on The Start. Good morning, Mitchell. Good morning. How are you? That's Paul Edmonds guy, a brilliant human, by the way. Yo, absolutely. <laughs> and he, he brings uh, things to life and paints pictures uh, with his words. And so, so we love his enthusiasm and the perspective that he brings. Um, math wasn't necessarily my strongest subject, wasn't necessarily my weakest either, Mitchell. But I did some math before uh, we came on the air this morning. And the Jets have a 714 points percentage on home ice, which is pretty uh-huh. impressive. Uh, just over 
over 500 at 557 on the road. How important is getting a win tonight to start things off on this trip? Yeah, extremely. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you look at the the team that they're going to be playing tonight in the Columbus Blue Jackets, you know, they're they're last in their division. But of course, as you mentioned off the top, they do have that Patrick Line guy and he tends to uh you know, he he can find the back of the net with, with some ease. All he needs is a little bit of space as we saw when Columbus was in Winnipeg uh back in December. He scored twice in that game and uh was quite a threat all over the ice. So certainly someone the Winnipeg Jets no, they'll have to keep an eye on tonight. But you, I think you just want to keep the momentum rolling from the last couple of games that you've had uh, on home ice coming out of the player break. You know, you play Chicago. Yes, a team that's, you know, having their struggles this year. But you get that win to come out of the break. And then you play a team in the Seattle crack. And that certainly we're at the end of a five-game road trip. And, you know, for them, certainly wanting to, to get home and trying to end their road trip the right way. They're a team that's playing extremely well. Uh, in the Pacific Division, near the top of the Western Conference as well, alongside the Winnipeg Jets. And they played, I think, one of their best games of the season, did Winnipeg against Seattle. You know, no matter what um, statistic you look at, whether it's one of the quote-unquote fancy stats or just because of kind of some of the regular ones, I thought Winnipeg was just a, a superior team throughout that entire contest. And they did so many good things that night. Every defenseman had a shot, had at least a shot on goal. You know, like that, that means they're getting some offense from the blue line. That means they're engaged in the offensive side of the game. They didn't really give up a whole lot. Seattle certainly had their pushbacks in that game, but I think the Winnipeg Jets did so many good things against Seattle that, uh, you know, contribute to them being such a really good team on home ice that they'll want to carry it on the road. Certainly not easy to do uh, no matter what building they go in on this road trip, but, they want to get, uh, I think, a really good feeling in their room on the road as well. Yes, they're over 500. They're they got 10 wins and 11 losses against the Eastern Conference this year, so certainly uh, something that they want to improve. But Rick Bonus said yesterday, as long as we're in the same spot in the standings, if not better by the end of this road trip, uh, he'll be happy. So certainly uh, something for the Winnipeg Jets to shoot for as they get underway tonight against Columbus. So there's the standings to look for in terms of bonuses target. We've talked about the fact that there's been two wins for the Jets since returning from the player break. But, you know, we can look at the numbers and we can look at the standings. I'm wondering what just stands out for you in terms of what, uh, and this is going to sound cheesy to say maybe, but the overall feel, because the break's supposed to be that break, chance mm-hmm. to regroup. And as they come back together, you know, the momentum has to be there in all sorts of different ways. And so attitude might be one of them or other. What stood mm-hmm. out for you? I think it's it's energy, to be honest. I mean, they played more games than anybody in, in the National Hockey League in, in uh, December and January. And you could kind of, you know, they won't give much for excuses of any, but you could just tell by the time that they were getting into those last few games before the break, like just how much all of this hockey had really uh, taken a toll on them. And yes, they got healthy at the at the start of January in terms of players being able to return to the lineup, at, or at least a fair chunk of them. But even still, you know, that that's a one heck of a grind for that group to go through. And no matter how close the, the room is, you know, it's eventually if you're just fatigued and there's, you know, there's not as much gas in the tank, it just makes it harder and harder to win hockey games. Now, the Jets still did a, a great job being able to do that over those two months to be able to keep them in, keep themselves in the position that they're at. But I think what we see coming out of that 11-day break you know, sure, Josh Morrissey and Connor Hellebuck got a little bit of a shorter break thanks to their all-star game participation. But I think you're just seeing energy, you know, just a renewed sense of, all right, we're into the final 30 games of the regular season. We've been able to, you know, rest up a little bit. And that, I think that rest is what a, what brings some speed back into the Winnipeg Jets 
lineup throughout the all the lines and speed is just such an important part of the game now that you know if if you're a step off it almost looks like you're three steps off just because of how quick everybody is in the nhl now so and especially you take a look at this road trip once you get past columbus you're going into three teams in the new york area that i mean new jersey is a young and fast group and then you got the New York Rangers, another team that's got a lot of speed. The New York Islanders aren't an easy team to play against, you know. So you're just all you're going to be facing are teams with a whole heck of a lot of speed and teams that are in playoff races. So none of these games are going to get any easier as it goes on. So that's why I think the player break just for rest alone was a massive thing for the Winnipeg Jets, and I think it's really showed in the last couple of games. Now, Mitchell, rookie Cole Perfetti currently sits in third in overall rookie scoring. He spent the majority of the second half of last season injured, which is actually why he's still a rookie this year. What are the keys for him to handle the increased intensity and physicality of the final 28 games? Yeah, it's been interesting when you look at Cole Perfetti's uh, career. You know, yeah, it's I have to keep reminding myself that he is a rookie, you know, because he had played some games last year. He looked really good with Kyle Connor and Pierre-Luc Dubois. And even in the game against the Seattle Kraken a couple of nights ago, he played on three different lines over the course of that game. And talking to him yesterday, he spoke about how, how much pride he's taken in the growth of his defensive game. And Rick Bonus echoed that as well. And, you know, that's really what's going to, you know, earn him ice time over the course of these last 30 games. Yes, he's going to have to get used to the physical aspect of the game. It's going to get harder. It's going to get, you know, there's not going to be as much open ice for for him to use his offensive creativity. But if you're a winger that Rick Bonus and the coaching staff can rely on in that defensive zone, that's just going to mean good things for you. And Cole Perfetti said yesterday, you know, a good defense is a good offense. You know, if you have the puck, it's hard for the other team to attack and it's hard for them to be in your own zone. So, He's worked on a number of things this year. And throughout his career, he's kind of always been a guy that has turned it on in the second half. I mean, I look back at his 2020-21 um, campaign with the Manitoba Moose. He had 26 points that year, but 19 of those points came after February 13th. And he finished with points in 12 of his last 14 AHL games that season. So he, talk a lot, he talked a lot about his confidence when it gets into the second half of the year. So I think... You know, yes, the NHL is a, a whole other level to be able to, to find that confidence in. But I think we've seen, and there's a lot of body of work of Cole Perfetti that you know he's going to just continue to get better and better as the as the season goes on. I thought he played really well against Seattle. Uh, four shots on goal. It's the third time this year he's been able to do that. Played over 15 minutes, so certainly he's a guy that's getting a lot of looks, no matter what line he's playing on. So. It's going to be interesting to see how he handles things over the course of this road trip when the Winnipeg Jets don't have last change. It's a little bit harder for Rick Bonus to get that matchup that he's looking for. But I think Cole Perfetti has shown over the course of this season that he's a guy that you know, can be relied on. He's always going to want more, and the coaching staff is always going to expect more from him. But as we've seen over the course of his career, when it gets into the second half of the season, he's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and I don't think Coach Bonus hides him. But, you know, when you're playing amongst a forward group, the likes of Pierre-Luc Dubois, Mark Shifley, Nikolai Ehlers, Kyra Connor, and Blake Wheeler, it's uh, it makes it a little bit easier out there in terms of, you know, the other team has to keep an eye on everyone. Uh, Perfetti looks like... You know, like a kid out there compared to some of these men, and just physically his face. Uh, this is his first job, pretty impressive first job. What was your first job, Mitchell? 
My first job way back when, well, if we want to go real young, I was, uh, I helped with greenskeeping at a mini golf course. So there's that. Um, I think that's kind of started my love for golf. Um, I worked with my dad at a bakery once, uh, when back in, uh, back in Dauphin, my parents still live there. And I would, I guess I would qualify that as my first job. And it's one that's never really left me because I still bake at the house every so often here and there, you get a little bit of an urge to do that. So um yeah still remember a lot of that actually on the way home uh last weekend kind of or sorry at the end of the player break there uh we were driving and we were behind a, a truck hauling some some baking ingredients i just recognized the company name and i was telling my wife how i remembered emptying trucks like that and i call it i didn't necessarily um have to go to the gym afterwards because man 22 kilogram bags of flour that's uh for a 13 year old kid that uh reminded me of just uh how much flower i had to move around back in the day but it was a nice little after school thing to do and me and my dad kind of bonded over it and greens keeping at a mini golf course is that just a fancy way of saying you vacuumed the uh, the yeah. mini golf course a hundred percent and hey there was some there was some water hazards there that i had to put some water in all right so, okay. you know it was i had two things on the old task list okay did you say vacuum <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was pristine beautiful mini not- golf course I didn't know. I guess I guess that makes sense. I was thinking, I don't know why, that you'd have to comb it down or something, but not with fake grass. So never mind. Yeah. Ah. Well, good for you for taking care of those greens. Good for you for lifting those bags of flour, Mitchell. And thank you so much for your expert analysis on the Winnipeg Jets. We appreciate your time. Not a problem. Have a great morning, everyone. Mitchell Clinton covers the Jets for Jets TV and joined us live this morning on 680 CJOB.